Well, welcome. Um, here we are, second day of February. And um, a lovely 14 degrees in February. <laughs> Times are changing. <laughs> uh, lending to the climate change, guys, that things are not as they ought to be. But anyway, um, I want to begin by reading and then um, praying, and then I'll, I'll kind of do my long running to, um, the, to our reading today. So obviously we're going through the, if you haven't been here, well, we are going to be going through the book of First Corinthians or the letter of First Corinthians, and we're going to be um, taking our time through that, hopefully um, learning new things <clears throat> as well as um, being reminded of old things. Old things that we, we maybe have swept under the carpet, or maybe we're going to be having things that are very much at the forefront of our mind, but yet we know um, we need to work at it. And maybe something that we would, something that is said, something that um, just comes into your spirit as we kind of go through this will help you. And so, obviously, this is here to help us not just individually in our Christian walk, but obviously to help us um, corporately as well. How can we be a better, a better church, a better community? How can we better embrace the gospel that ultimately unifies us? So um, I hope you, you are paying attention. I hope that you are, um, as it were, putting it into application as well. Every week, I hope you know, there is something you walk away with and say, I'm going to try that. And I'm going to not just try it, but do it. There is no try, as Yoda would say. <laughs> you either mean to do it or you don't mean to do it. Or as Oprah would say, you can't be a little bit pregnant. <laughs> you know, do it or don't do it. So let me read. Anyway, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. Um, I want to read from the ESV. I want to pray and then I want to um, intro and um, jump into the text and unpack that a little bit for you. And when I say a little bit, I mean a little bit. We're, um, we, are, we are trying to change the things up in here. So, again, pray with us as we, we try to make these more cutting to the point. So, anyway, it starts here in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God, though, through... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful this morning that we have, uh, this afternoon, dear Lord God, that we have this opportunity to come together as a body to enjoy great, you know, enjoy praising you together. Enjoy that, uh, a, a beautiful time in communion as well, where we, again, is remembering your death. Lord, we are thankful that, Lord, that it's a reminder of our common union in you. And again, here we are at a scripture that deals with that very, very principle. Lord, we are in the midst of a society in turmoil. And no doubt, no little turmoil ourselves, amongst ourselves, within this smaller community. But again, we are praying that, Father, that you shine your light into our lives. Again, your word is light and a lamp onto our feet, dear Lord. So let it so shine in our lives, dear Lord God, that it will bring clarity, bring conviction, bring encouragement, where it is needed, dear Lord Father. And again, help us as we pursue you with all our heart, with all our mind, with our soul, and all our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me do a little bit of a run-in, because again, I think it will help us, and, and to some extent, I want to kind of begin the process of application right from the very beginning. I want to start off by saying that I would say probably for the last five years, possibly more, but I'm just saying for the last five years, in particular um, in the run-up to the Brexit and whatnot, that the world, the Western world, has been in the midst of an identity crisis. An identity crisis. And... In particular, the idea of victim culture. And it has made an indelible mark on our society that what has happened as a result of this victim culture has been the proverbial race to the bottom. As various groups are trying to outdo one another as being the most persecuted people the most deprived, the most oppressed. And the final result is that victimhood is ultimately worn as a badge. As, again, the quote-unquote white knights parade them as their noble project. Here is the great work I am pursuing. I can't forget an encounter I had with a, a young lady in a, again, in this, around, I guess, about five years ago, when black consciousness and black religion was becoming quite a big thing. And she was making that move towards black religion. And in that move towards black religion, and we were having this conversation with her, and I was like saying, well, why is this so important to you? Why, why, why move from a, a conventional Christian background to this? Why is it so important? And she said, and I, and I paraphrase, is that this was important to her. This, was, this is a more authentic version of herself. I believe that we are on dangerous ground when Christ is not the primary source of our identity. This is not obviously to deny the fact that we are black or we're women or we're, we're Chinese or whatnot. But 
when we don't have Christ as the primary source of our identity, we are going to find, as we are in a world right now, divided by ethnicity, gender, class, status. But these things need not actually be impassable divides for us, again, if we hold something that truly unifies us. This leads me to, to clarify the problem. The problem behind the Corinthian issue, which I will label it, the Corinthian issue, that the, Greek, the Corinthians are unable to outwork the gospel as it ought to be because they are still very much sitting within their Greek culture, examining the gospel and interpreting it in such a way that it fits comfortably into what they're already doing. It does not occur to them to examine what it is they have missed. Whilst taking one another to court, sleeping with temple prostitutes, eating temple sacrifices, not believing in the bodily re resurrection of Christ. All these things are happening seamlessly while they're continuing to go to church and fellowshipping one another and no doubt indulging in the scriptures. And yet it never occurs to them. So liberal is their interpretation of the gospel that they even allow behavior that the normal pagan society wouldn't tolerate. 1 Corinthians 5.1 tells us about a man sleeping with his brother or his father's wife. There always remains a danger for us when we're having our eyes too closely fixed on the trends of society. And we are encapsulated in the spirit of the age. That we are trying to find ways in which, how can I better fit into the society in which I have now? Because, again, there's always that pressure that the church needs to modernize. And go with the times. And that's what we are under the pressure to do, is that we need to move. And just even just recently, reading this morning about the Church of England, continuing its statement to say, well, we are not going to condone LGBT sexual relationships. And numerous LGBT communities who are, quote, unquote, part of the Church of England are saying that they're disappointed that the church has not moved with the times. Obviously, this is not everyone. Some have indeed moved the goalposts to fit a modern society. But in the end, we end up going the extra mile because we believe that uh, this is how we present the church as being a loving environment. The end result, though, is a gospel that warps grace and manipulates the word of God to meet false conceptions of love. False conceptions of love. I'm loving you by allowing you to be who you want to be, even though 
I know in my heart, Scripture doesn't really support it. There also comes the issue of unity in diversity. The problem in the, this is a, a problem that's also in the background and is going to be more closely dealt with in chapter 12. The problem is, is that when we hold the values of our current society so high that people ultimately chase the gifts and the abilities that ultimately people will accept. And so what you do is you lose the diversity. So everybody in the Corinthian church wants to speak in tongues because that's the glamour gift. That's the one that gets you noticed. And then we lose that distinction because then we are ultimately creating a church in which only certain types of people are comfortable. And not just by virtue of ethnicity. There are churches where, you know, again, I remember back in the day we were fighting off this projection of being a hip-hop church. Because this is where rappers come to fellowship and feel comfortable. We need that unity in diversity. We need to be able to embrace the fact that the differences that exist within us, and even though they may not be the gifts that people cherish and hold dear because that's not the way society is construed, then we are still got to be able to appreciate each other for the gospel's sake and not put the pressure on people to conform to our norms. So what's the story so far? Well, the Greeks' high regard for rhetoric and sophistry. So if, we, if you know anything about Greek culture, this is the birthplace of the philosophers. Of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. This was the place where we are the place of, of wisdom. Athens, named after Athena, goddess of the wisdom. This is what the Greeks prized. This was the chief gift, and and as a result of this, they had started to turn, as we heard last week from, from, from Pastor B, that they now made their leaders into rock stars. Hey man, I'm of Apollos. I love the way he breaks it down. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And so they have now made that which they prize so much as a culture, that which they look for in a leader. If you're not coming with the rhetoric, if you're not coming with the the, the kind of clever twists of phrases, then really you're not meeting me where I'm at. Paul now turns to the cross of Christ. And he he wants to say, well, let's talk about wisdom then. But I'm not going to talk about wisdom in your own Greek understanding of wisdom. 
I want to bring you to the cross of Christ and to the God who brought Jesus to the cross. I want to take you to the place where he died for you. And let's examine the wisdom of God doing that. This again is a, going back to the fact that the, one of the chief Greek statements in history is that might makes right. You establish the fact that you are the conqueror by the fact that you make people do what you want them to do. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't force people to accept him. So how does he do this? Well, the first two verses, 18 and 19. Now he turns from the key figures of the Christian movement to the central act of, of Christendom. So the people are now put aside. So let's put, the, let's put Apollos and let's put Cephas and myself or he, and, 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 and Jesus aside and then bring Jesus to the forefront and then say, well, look what Jesus done for us. He brought him to a cross. Again, it, we had it unpacked for us last week that the cross was not just a way of killing you. It was a way of shaming you. It was a way of ultimately making you say, this is what happens to rebellious people. You've got to think about it in the, in, in, in the context of what would make you scream today if you found out that somebody had received a charge for something that you would have thought was socially unacceptable? Whether they were wrongly or rightly convicted of it, but that's what it is. It's, it's, it, it, it's that squeamish feeling of like, how can I associate with somebody who's been convicted for that? So now he says that rather than it being congruous or, or consistent with conventional wisdom, it actually is counterproductive to what they would have expected a wise God to do. Would a wise God in your rational mind have done that? Because it's the ultimate thing of like saying, well, you see an army of people in front of you and you want to conquer them and win them over to them. And so what you do is you, you, you put yourself down and you die in front of them. And it's like, says, who would do that? You don't conquer the enemy by dying for them. You conquer them by conquering them. Paul then quotes Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah to basically say, God has always done this. Not just to you Greeks, but to us Jews as well. Wherever we thought that we had got God in a box, then ultimately we find that God flips the script and does something completely different. God has always done this. I mean, you can think right back to the beginning, isn't it? Very, from the very roots of, of 
uh, of the Israelite people where Abraham uses his conventional wisdom to think about how is he going to have a child? Well, I obviously can't have it with a 90-year-old woman. Let me figure this out. Only for God to appear and say, no, Sarai is going to have a child. So right from the very start, God has been thwarting our conventional wisdom. Verse 20 now, Paul continues to allude how men of wisdom ultimately fail to tame God in their rational mind. Because again, this is what we're contending with. Well, this is what I would do. There was, um, uh, <laughs> there's a great song by, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Something Green. No, not Al Green. No. No, no, Christian guy that died in the plane. Keith Green, there you go. And he has a song we're called Trials Turn to Gold. And it's in the song, he talks about how, you know, he is constantly battling with this whole idea that whenever he thinks that God is going to do something this way, he uses it in a very different way. And he realizes that it's the trials that ultimately become the places where he is lifted up. Rather than like him stepping into big platforms and, and, and God just bringing him up, he always found that God was, just, was, was, was taken into lower places in order to take him where trials turn to gold. It's a beautiful song. Pursue it. Listen to it. People cannot tame the wisdom of God. Verse 21, here we understand that Paul is not presenting, now, Paul is not presenting an argument here that is anti-intellectual. So he's not here saying, well, actually, it's no point bringing your brain to Christianity and a hyper-spirituality should be pursued where God wants us kind of more like mystics as opposed to kind of concrete. Uh, guys that are completely irrational. This is not what he's saying here. What he is actually contending against is an intellect that believes that it can put God in a box so it's able to anticipate his every move. So we need to get that subtle nuance. Well, this is the reason why I would never go and... Um, Read any of those books, those, those tomes on, 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 on the Bible and all the rest of it. This is the reason why I would never go to Bible college. I was one of those people as well. Oh, you know, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to, you know. It's not a, what they used to call it? They said it's not a seminary. It's a cemetery. It's where Christians go to die. <laughs> that was me. I want to keep a lively faith. I want to keep a faith which, you know, if I'm being honest, I was in control of. Because I only had me to measure against. No one could judge me. Because I was sitting in my house. I didn't go to church. Doing church at home. The Lord has redeemed me from that. <laughs> 
Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that way we may do the words of this law. So if there's any scripture that you need to kind of clarify that, then there's your scripture. That God has actually revealed stuff in his words so that we may keep it and give it to our children and that we may follow it. And that we will not go around with our spiritual antennas and thinking that we can catch it merely through the wind. Paul says all this ultimately to say that the salvation that you have received has come to you in a way that you would have never expected. You would have never expected it this way. Verses 22 to 23. I actually like what Gordon Fee says about this particular thing, about the Greeks' um, pursuit of wisdom and the, um, the Jews' seek for power. And, and he, he believes in, in these scriptures here, in these particular things, that there are archetypal forms of religion, of false religion. And I agree with him. I believe that he is kind of summarizing the kind of archetypal pagan religions that either see God as rational like myself, so therefore I can understand that, well, you know, again, if you look at the old pagan system, well, the gods are obviously angry, but if I feed them, because when I'm a bit sad, that if I give him food, then I'm going to be a bit more happy, and then ultimately he's going to give me what I want. It's like believing that, you know, the way to a man's heart is through his. So why did they come and bring their big baskets of food? He will eat and he will be happy. Because that's how I think. That's the rational God. Because he's just like me. It's what we call in theology scaling. Ultimately, God is just us scaled up to bigger heights. As opposed to be completely other. The other version is the God of power. I believe in a power God, which ultimately basically means that God is my genie. If I just rub and burn enough incense, that he will ultimately give me what I want. And God doesn't know what I want. I have to tell him what I want, and then he gives it to me. See many forms of that today, right? Lord, <laughs> so the archetypal forms, the God of wisdom, which is basically my wisdom projected onto God, and the God of power, which is there is a God out there and is an unknown force that has a no mind of its own really, but is there to create what I want. For those of you who follow... Um, Star Trek, it's like the, the holograph thing that you put in there and you say, what do you want? And it just... For those of us who are from different cultures, we might find ourselves, because obviously different cultures prefer different versions of that God. You know, you would say that probably in the European mind, they, we fancy the rational God, the God of wisdom. In other places, African continent, for example, might prefer the God of power. 
And those of us from different cultures, we find ourselves dancing between the two. So, we go on to verse 24. So it is that when God gives us faith to believe in Christ, crucified and resurrected by his sovereign will, it will be by smashing the idol image that we have made to him. And this is what he wants to bring home to the Corinthians. He says that God actually smashed that idol of wisdom that you had about him when he saved you. When you accepted Christ crucified for you. He smashed that idol and then he is now contended by the fact that now you have gone back. And it's almost like you've forgotten the fact that Christ was crucified for you and you've gone back to your, your idol of God, the rational God who thinks just like you. There always remains a temptation for us post-justification to be reinvested in those prior distortions of God. We can go back and we can try to seek that rational God and we can go back and try and seek that God of power and bring them back up and say, this is the God I want. And this is the dilemma of the Corinthians as we meet them in the text. It's like Paul has left them for, you know, for some time now, and now they're back to their old ways. They're back to sloppy Christianity, sloppy Christianity that ultimately fits into their way of life. A sloppy Christianity that we also are prone to. Verse 25, in Paul's final statement of this section, he clarifies that the economy of scales, that God's foolishness by human estimations trumps even the most profound human wisdom. So when we kind of bring a, 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 a consortium of the biggest heads on, on the planet, you know, uh, where if you put all their IQ, you know, together, it's, you've got to start doing to the power of whatever. You, you take those guys and those women as well, and you put them together and, 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 and you get them a strategy to solve the world's problems, then yet... You, you would say that that on the economy of scales, that group of people, let's say there's thousands of them from all around the world. That people, the foolishness of God, that means the things I do playfully without really thinking is still more wise than that group of people. Such is the otherness of God. That where his foolishness begins, and this is obviously not to suggest that God is foolish, is that even those things that God doesn't have to think about deeply is wiser than that group of people who are trying. Whether you've got economists in there, you've got doctors in there, you've got business leaders in there, you've got philosophers in there, whatever it is. That's the image he wants to create. That group of people will still be inferior to the wisdom that God, the, the foolishness that God would do, let alone the best of his work. That's the picture he leaves with you. So ultimately you say, 
Stop trying to outthink me. Use your intellect towards other pursuits as I take you back to Deuteronomy 29. The things that have been revealed. He's given us solutions to help us fix a world marred by sin. Namely, love one another. Take care of one another. Let's do that. And let's pass that on to our children. Application. I started with victim culture. Christ is the ultimate victim. Let me just go out and say that. We live in strange times because unlike the Corinthian culture, victimhood is in vogue now. However, we do not escape the same application for them is for us because rather than shun ourselves and take away ourselves from the fact that, well, I can't really identify with someone who was a victim like that, we have to start saying, rather than look at myself and say, what a victim I am because I'm being oppressed. Let's look at the true victim, the ultimate victim, the one who really deserved not to die. Because the danger of this, when we do not have Christ as the, our ultimate identifier, is that we will ultimately stay in our divides. And will never really impact one another's lives. And we'll be swung around by the culture because again, this... If it's not victimhood today, it's going to be some other pet project of some elite elsewhere who wants to sway your mind. This is what you need to pursue in order to be a complete person and to be at home in, in this particular world the way I want to see it. The challenge then remains for us, like the Corinthians, to embrace the culture of Christ now, I'm not talking about a pseudo-culture that we all make up and say, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. No. Just uniting around the fact that we have both a common, we all have a common saviour. That's what I mean by the culture of Christ. I am, a, I am a sinner redeemed by his sacrifice. And we must do this over and above the culture of our own communities. And I say this not necessarily to say that our, our culture is irrelevant. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that where our cultures conflict with the gospel, then the gospel must win. The gospel must win. And must be laid down. But you know what? We can only do this if we know that that conflict actually exists. Some of us have got our head buried in the sand. I've seen too many people taken away with this foolishness. And are caught up in the sway, like the illustration of the, the conversation I had with this woman. Who's turning her back on Christianity to pursue a black religion. 
I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're holding strong. But if you are not, if you are conflicted by the culture around you and saying, well, well, what is it I really need to hold on to? Then I say, let it be Christ crucified. Let it be that. Let it be the fact that I am, I'm a part of a community of redeemed sinners. And that will be my ultimate identifier. Whether I'm white, whether I'm black, whether I'm woman, man, that comes after. But first and foremost, I'm a Christian. And through that, all that I am will conform to the fact that Christ has made me, yes, in an ethnic group. Yes, he's made me an agenda. Yes, he's given me a certain status in life. And I will be content with that which God has given me. And that will be our reckoning and our redemption. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today that, again, you've revealed things to us that we should take with us and be invested in. Help us to be invested in the fact that, Lord, we are redeemed sinners. Let that be the thing that unites us, dear Lord. When, when, when we are engaged with one another, that we are no better than one another on the basis that we have an identity, a common union with Christ. And when we try to, again, we want our, our, our wisdom and our conventions to try and organize that which you have created through Christ, then help our wisdom there, Lord, our intellect, to bow to that which you revealed. May we not bypass it. Not, may we not continue in our, in our unredeemed worldviews and try to shape Christ into something that makes us feel more comfortable and makes us more feel at home. Help it to be the pure religion that accepts one another on the terms in which you've made us and you've brought us to you. Now, no matter where we are, whether we're an ex-convict, whether we're black or white, male, female, from a good job or a, just a standard working class job, may there be a unity, dear Lord God, that unites us, that will not have us, as it were, in division with one another. Help us, Lord God, because... Again, this is your vision for the church, and it has not changed. And so it was for the Corinthians, so it is for us today, dear Lord God. Help us to overcome the spirit of the age that will have us be concerned about other things and allow ourselves, dear Lord God, to allow the gospel to still be that which guides our passions and our hearts. So, so Lord, I pray, have your way with your church today. And may we run with this for your son's sake. In Amen. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.